If you would this morning turn with me to Exodus chapter 1. The last time I preached we were also in Exodus, a different part of it. Today we go to chapter 1 and I want to look at a passage here that... Uh, has a nugget of truth in it that may have escaped you in your readings of Exodus. Now from what I understand, most people are real happy all the way up to about the middle part of Exodus when God gives the law, and then they kind of just slow down in their reading of it because the narrative stops and then you get instructions. And it's a little tougher to to drudge through the instructions. But here we are in the the narrative here of Exodus. You'll remember that uh, God has called Abraham, Isaac, Jacob... And then you get the story of Joseph at the end, ending of uh, Genesis and all that happens to him, which his life is fascinating in itself. We could spend 14 Sundays on him alone uh, and still not be, be uh, satisfied with, with that. And then ultimately they, they end up in Egypt and they stay there for 400 years. 400 years in this foreign land, this land that God has not given to them uh, and it's not the promised land. And so let's pick up here in Exodus 1 and verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens." They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom, and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with the hard service, in mortar and in brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Hua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your holy word. Jesus, would you reveal your word to us by your spirit? We pray in your name. Amen. What 
is ultimate? What is ultimate in your life? Or, maybe a better way to ask it is, what have you made ultimate in your life? Because maybe some of us started out and we thought to ourselves, this is what I want to be, this is what I want to be ultimate in my life. You know, we set goals from time to time. And maybe at some point when you were younger, you had an experience with God, and you said, you know what, I want, I want this to be ultimate in my life. I've seen it work for so-and-so in my life, and I want that to be what is ultimate, what is of, of, of utmost concern for me. But maybe in all of life, maybe in, in all the you know, hairiness of life, in all the cloudiness of life, the different varying situations that we get ourselves into, maybe we've made something else ultimate. So i just ask you, just kind of a beginning question here, what really is ultimate in your life? If someone were kind of peek into your life that did not know you, what would they say was ultimate? Of course, time and money are going to be an indicator, right? Where we spend our time, where we spend our money, typically indicates what we are concerned with the most. In your spiritual life, what is of ultimate concern? For your family, for your kids, for your friends, what is, what is ultimate? Here, we find two ladies that made God ultimate. And so I want to talk about them this morning. Maybe they've escaped your attention before when reading through Exodus. I mean, you do have that towering figure called Moses... He kind of dominates most of the scene in Exodus. When we think of Exodus, we think of Moses. Uh, when we think of monotheism, we think of Moses. When we think of the law, the Ten Commandments, we think of Moses. Uh, Moses is quite a figure of all the prophets, of all the people in the Old Testament. Moses is probably uh, the largest figure in the Old Testament. Uh, of course, Jesus is going to be in the New um, so let's begin here. Look at the background again. We, we move from Abraham's call in chapter 12 of Genesis all the way to where we're in Egypt as the people of God. And yet we've not received the promise of the land. So the land was promised way back in Genesis 12, and yet we've not gotten it. And here we are in Egypt for 400 years multiplying, which our church knows a little bit something about. Um, just imagine us on a larger scale. Right? We have a lot of babies that are locked up back here. Um, they had a lot of babies as well. And so the next door neighbors said, whoa, whoa, these people keep multiplying. They're going to come against us. And so the king, king, the king who, who we know more as the Pharaoh um, of the land, which is just a title that's given to him. Uh, he was the king of Egypt. He says, look, these people keep multiplying and they're going to be able to overtake us by sheer number." Not by skill, but just number of people. And they're, they're going to join sides if anybody decides to attack us. And if you know where the land of Goshen is, it's where you would have to enter if you were to attack Egypt. I mean, why Egypt was so uh, protected most of their life, why they don't have these big you know, insurrections of, uh, of... Well, they don't have people from the outside coming in. Instead, they have insurrections of rebellion. That's how Egypt falls. When Egypt falls, they fall from inside, not from the outside, because there's only really one way in which is that marshy land up north of the South Nile, if that makes sense. 
which is lower Egypt because the Nile flows the opposite. Anyway, okay. Uh, for those of you who know the geography. But nonetheless, there's only one way to get in, and this is where they were located. All right? So, very important. He's, he's seeing strategically this is not going to work out. This, this relationship, and notice, notice what, how it begins here in 8. There's a king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, that's key because, you know, the Pharaoh put Joseph in charge, second in command. Uh, during his period of time, which uh, and so now you have now you have a different Pharaoh who doesn't know Joseph. He doesn't care about who these people are, how they got here, or why they're here. He only sees them as a threat. So his first move is to, if we can use this term, depopulize the Hebrews. So how does he do that? A three-step plan. Now he tries to be very political at first. He tries to be, you know, uh, try to use the, the political way to do this and basically says, look, I want to kill you all, but I'm going to put you into slavery. That way it will reduce the amount of babies you're producing. Because, I mean, look, if you're working from sunup to sundown, there's not much time to produce babies or to have babies. But instead, he puts them into slavery, makes them work hard, and guess what? They multiply even more. And they become great and strong through their work. And so now he's got another dilemma. He tried the political means of just trying to be more of a, you know, a totalitarian, but now he's going to have to become even worse. So what does he do? He chooses to, his second plan here is to abort the male babies. So in other words, he tells these two midwives, well, he tells all the midwives, these two are mentioned. He says, look, go, and when the, when, you know, the baby's coming out, you kill them if it's a male. That way they think it's stillborn. And... If it's a female, let them live. Now it's interesting, uh, the Pharaoh, remember, the king of Egypt, he would have been looked at during this time period as God. Now that's a little weird for us. You know, we don't look at our president as God. But the majority of the world's histories have. Now, let me just take you back 60, 70 years, World War II, Japan, the emperor, we had to make him tell his people that he wasn't God. When we made them surrender, part of the treaty was to say, you go before your people and you tell them you're not God. So he had to do that in Japan. That was just 60 years ago or so. So it's not that far removed in thinking that God is the king and the king is God. But here, he would have been the son of the sun, S-U-N, if that makes sense. Okay, So he's the son of the sun, Ra, who is R-A, Who's the disc god, the sun god? I mean, what's what's primary in Egypt? The sun. <laughs> so he's a god, and he is the son of God. All right. So when he says something, you do it. He's God after all. This is an edict. This is a command. You kill these male babies. It's a command. Now, why he left the females? People speculate maybe he saw them as weak as far as war is concerned. But notice. They don't multiply by war. He kind of missed a little something, didn't he? <laughs> anyway, I thought that was funny. But, <clears throat> you know, you don't get more babies by war. You get more babies by women. Women are the only ones who have babies. And so, anyway, he doesn't take out that key critical thing. But nonetheless, he thinks he can put them into slavery and maybe find some use for them. So, abort the male. That doesn't work. Why does it not work? Because of two ladies who decide to fear God and not fear the king. And so instead, they don't abort these babies. 
So he goes to plan three, which is his third plan, which is the most evil plan. That is, just throw them all in the, in the river, in the Nile. Now again, for this context, and we've talked about this before here, but the Nile was also a god. So it was a way of sacrificing to the gods. I mean, the Nile is also important. You can't have Egypt if you don't have the Nile. Egypt has been often said to be, what, hundreds of miles long and only 10 miles wide. Why? Because the Nile. Once you get outside the Nile, you're dead. It's desert. There's no life. So the Nile is a god to them. It's of ultimate importance. It is ultimate, just like the sun is ultimate. So they make these ultimate things in their life gods. Sound familiar? Idolatry? Yeah, that's what it's all about. Whatever you make ultimate becomes a god. Whether it's football, whether it's your job, whether it's your kids. Uh, you can't love your kids in too much. Well, maybe not too much. You're just not, not loving them rightly. It's not about too much. So, he says, throw all the male babies in the Nile. Kill them all. Now, we'll stop with our story here because it goes on and you have one baby that's thrown into the Nile, but he's in an ark. He's in a boat. Who is Moses? But he'll be in chapter 2. We stopped in 1. There's a reason for that. I want to back up and just look at these two ladies that decide to obey God. Here you have a decision that they have to make. And the first one is this. Do they want to follow the king of Egypt or the king of kings? That's really the decision they're making. Is God more important or is my own life more important? Imagine if you would have been given that edict, that command, by a God of your land to kill babies. You say, man, that, that must be a messed up culture. Look around. This was happening on a birth stool, but there's a place in Huntsville where they do it behind the scenes too. Thousands. We were at the ball field the other day. Jessica reveals that she's pregnant to a lady there. And the lady says, obviously me too. She says, but don't worry, I'm getting them aborted Thursday. Okay. Kill their baby. A beating heart. A life. A person. This is not something foreign and removed. Here, the king, Pharaoh, is using the same tactic China's using right now as we speak. One child policy. And interestingly, they go the opposite way. All the girls are aborted in China. Why? Because girls are worthless in their understanding. Here, they abort the males. There, they abort the women. The little girls. There's more little girls killed in China than anywhere else in the world, babies-wise. They're going to have an epidemic coming on their hands, but that's neither here nor there politically right now. The point is, the same tactics are being used today. And there's two ladies that decide to do what God would want done rather than what the state wanted done. It's interesting, several places in the Bible, I'm thinking of two or three right now in particular, that people disobey the law of the land and instead obey God and are blessed for it. 
Even they lie. Think of Rahab. Remember her? Jericho? Ring a bell. They get into the land. She's a prostitute. And guess what? She says, you know what? I, I choose to serve the Lord. I, you, you say you're coming in here and, and Yahweh's going to destroy this land? I want to be on His side. I want to serve Him. And so she lies about them being in her house. And God blesses her. Just like God blessed uh, Germans who lied about Jews being stuffed under their basement. Under the floors. You see, Nazi Germany voted to have those things legalized. Just like we voted, our nation voted to legalize abortion. Murder doesn't make it right. We look at the Third Reich and say, what kind of evil people? And other generations look back at America and say, what kind of evil people? What's wrong with them? These death houses where you can't even protest around them. You can, you can come right in here and protest this morning if you want to. Nothing legally stopping you. You step inside an abortion, you're going to jail. Just because the state protects something or the state has a law doesn't mean it's right. That's what's happening here. They go against not only the state, they go against a God in their understanding. Now just imagine that. That's got to be scary. And yet they choose to obey God. They choose to fear Yahweh over the sun God who is the Pharaoh. Not only that, it's interesting here, and this is the real nugget of truth that is fascinating. The Pharaoh's name, this God, this King, He's not even mentioned. His name's not told to us. Now, it would be very helpful coming from a scholarly, historical standpoint to be able to pinpoint the date of, of these events. I think it's somewhere around 1400 B.C. Not exactly sure. Could be 1200. More likely 1400. But if we had His name, we would know. But guess what? We don't have His name. Why? Because in God's history, He is not important. That's why. But instead, you know who is important? Shephora, Pua, two midwives. They get their name listed in God's holy, eternal Word. And the king, the God of Egypt, he doesn't even get a mention. Because in God's kingdom, he doesn't matter. He's blown away like the wind, like it says in Psalm 1. Why? Because of His disobedience. Because of His wickedness. The point is clear in the narrative. If you choose to do what's right, if you choose to obey God and to fear God over fear of men, you'll be blessed. If you disobey and fear people in this life, you'll be cursed and forgotten, blown away like the husk, like the leaves on those trees out there. You see, the Pharaoh, he feared people. That's why he was doing all this killing. He feared people. He didn't fear God. And the midwives, they feared God and not people. Shephora, Pua, 
feared God. Now they didn't have some kind of spectacular. They weren't making you know six digits a year. And yet they're recorded here. It reminds me of The Great Divorce. Uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, where he talks about a bus ride from hell up to heaven. He says he gets up there and there's these phantoms walking around, ghostly figures, since I'm talking about Halloween, I figured I'd mention that, uh, who are actually them. He looks down and he's one of them. He's almost not real, which is the point. He looks out across to a forest out over the way, and he sees something glittering. He says, what kind of river runs through there? He says, that's not a river. The angel that's talking to him says, that's not a river. He says, well, what is it? He says, entourage. And so they emerge from the, from the forest, <laughs> and this lady in this beautiful dress and bright light is followed by all these thousands of people, again, an entourage, with singing and joyous celebration, and they're, and they're walking across the field toward them. And he says, who is that? She must be a queen. He said, well, in her earthly life, she was a housewife. She stayed at home with her kids. She raised them. She cleaned toilets. Cleaned the house. Honored her husband. Served at the church. Not really noticed by many people in this earthly life. But up here, she's a queen. Everybody knows her. From Moses to Abraham. Everybody's familiar with her. Why? Because she served God. That's why. She chose to obey God rather than men. To fear God to the point where she would obey even if her life was in danger. That's what Shephora and Pua did. They could have been killed. He calls them before and says, why are you not doing this? He could have had them killed. And you know what it says instead? They were blessed with what? A family of their own. Here they are delivering other families and they get a family of their own. That's how, that's how God works. You hold on to your life, you close up your life, and you will lose it. As sure as I'm standing here and you're hearing my voice, you will lose your life if you decide to hold on to it. But if you give your life, if you give it away, you'll gain life. You'll find true life. As you know, I'm reading through Lord of the Rings. I'm almost done. Yeah, I know you'll be glad when I'm done. But I'm at, I'm at the climax, right? Everything's coming down. They're at the black gate. They're surrounded by the enemy. There's nothing else by brute force they can do to survive. All hope is lost except for in two guys. Two guys who are... Their only mission is to guess what? Give themselves to Mordor. That's it. Be sacrificed. They know what two hobbits in Mordor? That's what all your hope rests on? Are you are you mental? And yet salvation comes through sacrifice. Ever heard of that? Because it's right here. Why is that an epic story? Because it connects to the most epic story ever told that is true which is Jesus Christ, who doesn't come and take it by brute force, but instead gives Himself up. 
That's good news because most of us are not warriors. Most of us are not skilled in the ways of this world. But that's okay. All God is asking you to do is you go teach tomorrow. As you go be a housewife tomorrow or a nurse or a doctor or an engineer or whatever it is you're doing. He just asks you to give yourself up. He just asks you to fear God like these two ladies did. It's fascinating here. You really have five ladies. See, the feminists are wrong about the Bible. I hate to tell them, but they're wrong. Actually, I like to tell them, but they're they're wrong. It's not a male chauvinist thing I like to tell them. I like to show that the Bible is true. There's five ladies here that changed the course of all of history. Two of them are Shephora and Pua. The other two is the daughter of Moses and his mother. And the last one is Zipporah. So these two ladies don't kill the male babies. His, his mother and his, uh, and, and his sister sorry, um, help protect him. When he's floating down there, she goes and nurses him. Uh, the daughter makes sure that, that she sees him and takes care of him, makes sure he gets somewhere where he's taken care of. And then Zipporah saves Moses' family. God is about to strike them dead. The angel of the Lord is sitting there with a, with a sword about to slay them. And she goes and circumcises the boy and saves the family. Five women right here at the beginning of Exodus that decide to serve God, to fear God and not man, and to do what is right obediently. And they change the course of world history. Why do you think we live in the greatest nation in the world? The West supersedes the East by droves. Egypt's been around for 6,000 years. What have they ever produced with their polytheism? Nothing. They have nothing to show for. They've just been blown away. And yet look at, look at what America has been able to do. Been able to give. Been able to create here. And even though it's crumbling at our feet because we've taken out the sure foundation, we still are reaping the benefits of someone's obedience. I'm asking you again, what is ultimate in your life? What do you want to be ultimate? What have you made ultimate in your life? Is it the gods of Egypt? Is it food? Is it comfort? Is it entertainment? Is it worry? Is it lust? Is it sensual pleasure? Money? All these are gods. All these things around us that become ultimate, that are so enticing, like the sun, like the Nile. Have you worshipped them? Are they under your bed now? Are they tucked away secretly? In your heart, because Yahweh says, Jesus says, you can't serve two masters. There's a narrow way and a broad way. Will you do like what Shephora and Pua did? Will you obey and be recorded among the saints? You want to be famous here? This world that's fleeting, crumbling, or do you want to be famous in heaven? God 
with outstretched hand this morning is calling you to be obedient. Not to men, not to women, but to God. Have you been? You can repent if you haven't. He's a good God. He's only good. He took the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm. He's the one who thought it up. He is the great physician, is He not? He knows what is best for us. Even when we taste the bitterness of this life, He knows the right medicine to heal. Even when we have to go under the knife, trust the physician. He's only doing what is good and right. Don't be infected by sin this morning. Don't be infected by this world. But instead, put your faith in God by obeying Him. It's not good enough just to say it. Do it. Remember Nike's famous thing, just do it. Yeah. Yeah. He's here. He's willing to help. The same God that delivered them can deliver you. He did it really in 1400 B.C. He delivered them actually in time and space. This is not a myth. This is reality. And He can deliver you from whatever sin you've entangled yourself in. Whatever doubt wraps itself around you. God can deliver you. My chains are broken. Now I'm free. We just sang it. Are you free? Are you still living in Egypt? He wants to free you for service. For joy. He's got so much to give you if you'll just get out of the way. If you'll stop bowing down to other gods. Will you do that this morning? If so, as we move into our response time, I want you to ask yourself the question again, what is ultimate in your life? If you want to leave a legacy, if you want to leave something behind of substance, go with God, not this world. Amen.